Amen. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in the book of Luke. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. Love to gift you a copy of the scriptures. You doing okay? Yeah? You feeling good? Christmas time, baby! Are you in the mood? Oh, it's so good, isn't it? Last week, you're still kind of, well, it's Thanksgiving, yes, yeah, I guess. And then you kind of get into the mode. There's stuff in the cities, put stuff on the light posts, and the music is playing in all the stores. You go to the Target because you just need some groceries, and it's just packed. And that's the bad side. But it again reminds you that something is happening. The world's coming awake. People are excited. This festival, this experience, this... Whatever it is, is exciting. Uh, And I'm glad that you're here this morning as we uh, (laughs) bum you out. I don't know. As we make it like real, as we think about it in all of its complexity with the edges and the sharpness that it has. We just, we want to go deeper because for us from Scripture... This is about much more than just the holiday. It's about much more than just all of us as a society together agreeing to feel good for a couple weeks. It goes deeper. We talked about that last week where we said, okay, Emmanuel, we just sang it, Emmanuel means God with us. And we took those words and we just sort of sat down And stared at him for a second. That's because in Christmas there's ruts, there's there's ways in which we go about it and you survive it or enjoy it. And then you come out the other side and you go about your life. But God has given us a calendar. I don't know, maybe he has sort of through church tradition. We've certainly inherited a calendar. With two high holy days. We remember every year at this time Jesus' birth. And then at Easter we remember his death and resurrection. And those two moments, those two points create this truth. They teach us something incredible. And the joy of Christmas and the right sort of uh, overgrowth around Christmas, because it's just so exciting, can in some way distract you, dull you, to the essential truths that are going on. God with us. And if you take that like a tea bag and put it in your brain and just let it seep and let that flavoring just sort of work its way around and actually start to say, God with us, what, do I really believe that? If I believe that, what does it mean? If you actually thought hard about it, you should have questions. You should have either joy or sort of confusion. As you think for a moment about Really, God with us. Well, is he always with us? Like when things get really, really bad, is he with us? And if that's true, 
Is he good? Do you see what I'm saying? If, if he's running things, and, and things get really bad for me sometimes, because sometimes things get really, really bad, and he's with me in that, is he good? Do you see that question? We ask that question as a society all the time. That's one of the questions you're going to get if you're loud and vocal with your belief in Jesus and an all-good, all-powerful God. People are going to say, okay, but how can he be good when the world is so wicked around you? And there's great answers to that question. We're going to do a whole series on suffering next year. But today... I want to start asking that question. What does it mean that God's with us? And what does it mean that God has suffered? If you've not stopped to think about that clearly, I think you've gotten a little bit of fuzz around either your concept of God or your concept of suffering because it's crazy that God has suffered. I want us to think about it for a moment in order for us to really start to understand it. We're calling this series Invasion. Because there is something about the truth of God invading not only our world and not only our nature as he takes on humanity, as we talked about last week, but invades our suffering. Invasion. That's a word that has a negative connotation to it. When I pitched the idea that we would call our Christmas series Invasion to the other pastors, there's a moment of, yeah, that's the, this beautiful, wonderful Christmas series, and you want to call it Invasion? Well, yeah. Because for us, that word invasion has a negative connotation because in America, it would only be a bad thing if we got invaded. Things are good-ish. Yeah, they're really good, actually, especially if you compare them to anywhere else. We can get focused on our problems, sure, but if you immediately, if you just start to imagine a red dawn scenario where you are a high school student, all of a sudden, did you just see that movie? They did a remake, so maybe the young people saw the remake. Probably not. There was the Russians fly over and drop in, and they invade the United States. How awful would that be? Not only the warring and whatever, but if all of a sudden we became Russia? Oh, no, we don't want to be Russian. The language, the climate, the culture, the food. No, no, there is no, no, we don't want to be Russian. Larry speaks Russian, so maybe I shouldn't be too anti-Russian, but we can't, no, no. It would be a step in a wrong direction. And, and people, even people that got really upset about the last presidential election, and I don't know if you saw on I-15 that there's a real estate company bought a billboard and it said, moving to Canada, let us sell your house. Did you hear about that kind of a fervor? Because it didn't matter. Everybody was so polarized. It's like, if that person wins, we gotta leave. If that person wins, then the other group says, we gotta leave. And there was this thing, oh man, if that happens, we're moving to Canada. Well, someone was elected. Did anybody move to Canada? No, I don't think it was a single person. Even people with dual citizenship were like, hmm, have you been to Canada? 
It is cold. It's beautiful and whatnot. I've not been. I went once. But it's cold. You don't actually want America to turn into some other country in the concept of invasion. It's a negative for us. If we think about it politically, if we think about it horizontally of one sovereign nation invading our sovereign nation, but when you take it horizontally and think about the fact that God has invaded our world, it becomes very different. It becomes something for us where we have to say, is that, is that good? Would our world be better if he was running it with a more... Do you see what I'm saying? If, if God is really with us, and if he is really with us, this happened 2,000 years ago, and then now we're, we're suffering how we're suffering. What do we do? How do we put those ideas Together, Well, we've got to start by looking at what the scripture says about Christ's coming. Go to Luke chapter 2. In the book of Luke, there's all kinds of stuff that we're told about Jesus' birth. There's all kinds of stuff that God gives us, helping us understand the context of Jesus' birth, helping us understand what it meant in the scope of scripture. But then in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we just get this very clear statement. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, if you read that sentence and just say, duh, you've missed something. Because it's true, this is all just historic. We're going to read a moment in a moment from the book of Revelation. And that's got a lot of what's called apocalyptic literature. It's like poetry. It's meant to be symbolic in a lot of different ways. Literal and symbolic. We could have a long conversation about it. But, in this passage, there's no question that he is simply a reporter reporting what actually physically happened. That Jesus... God was born, was with us, took on flesh. But the manner of his taking on flesh, stewarded perfectly by God, was that he would be born and be immediately, they're so poor, they're in the wrong spot, they don't have any ability to fend for themselves, to care for themselves in, in, in the way that we would kind of hope. And, and you can get into the story and realize that they weren't just destitute. But I mean, they were having to travel. And in that travel, traveling with this very pregnant woman, they couldn't even find a spot for her to give birth in a clean sort of way. And the God of the universe was born in a worse way than you were. Now, maybe you were born in like some nasty taxi cab on the way to the hospital, but 99% sure you were born as you were intended to be born, in some nice place, handled by these nice people who put you in nice, clean things. 
And the God of the universe was born to Mary, firstborn, born to Mary, and then wrapped up and placed in cow feed. And we laugh about the fact that it's her firstborn son. Because you think about it and you say, okay, for her to put her firstborn son into something that would be so, I mean, soft for the place, it was the best spot she could find in that room, but to put that baby in that hay in a manger, you have to say, okay, did she love the baby? Did she love the baby if she was setting the baby in something so dirty and something so infectable? Well, yeah, of course. It was her firstborn baby. You take care of the firstborn. <laughs> the third or the fourth, yeah. You might put them in some hay. I don't know. You got stuff to do. You've got several. But the firstborn, yeah. She loved Knowing that she loved him. What does it say that that's where she put him? That the Bible describes that for all time we are to know, this is the dirty little secret. No, it's not. It's proclaimed that he was placed, God of the universe, placed in cow feed, smelling cow smells. What does that say? It says that from the beginning he came and suffered. Could have been born to anybody. You know that that's true. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can set up the chessboard however he chooses. And he was choosing to have his son born in this way because from the beginning he was suffering. It tells us a ton about the world in which we live. We'll be able to dig into all these things more as we get into that series sometime next year, but Think about the fact that from the beginning he was suffering. We know in Matthew that it wasn't long after he was born that the wise men come, and when they come, they immediately go to the leader, they go to Herod the Great, and they say, hey, this great king has been born, where is he? And Herod the Great, who is shepherd, and, and this is in Herod's defense, forgive me for defending him, he's trying to delicately balance the Jewish state in the Roman Empire. And there's all kinds of reasons that that would be a very difficult, very tricky thing to do. Also, selfishly, sinfully, he finds out that there is one who has been declared king of the Jews and decides that he's going to destroy him. And if he can't be sure, he's going to be sure. He's going to draw a big circle. He's going to say, everybody in this area with a son, two years or younger, would kill the kid. So, after Jesus is born... He's immediately having to fly from it for his life. Angel comes, speaks to Joseph, says, you got to go to Egypt. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 2, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. If the last time that the government forced them to go from one place to another, they're having babies in cow feed, what do you think their life was like as fugitives in Egypt? He goes from poor to poor, suffering to suffering. Revelation says that he was in danger. 
in Revelation 12. And this passage is beautiful and deep, and I'd love to talk to you more about it. But it says, A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And that dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. God of the universe, born not only taking on human flesh, not only born to the poor, not only born to the the desperate and destitute and displaced, he is also in danger. Real danger. Here's what I need you to understand. God with us, that God, he suffers with us. Here's a quote from a guy named Paul David Tripp. If you're in our community groups, we're going through a book by the same guy. He wrote another book, a small book on suffering. Here's a great quote. There was no relief to the travail of Jesus. Began with the ignominious conditions of his birth. To having to immediately flee with his parents for his life. To being, and we kind of zoom forward here to his ministry, because the Gospels do too. To being essentially homeless. To being despised and rejected. To facing cruel injustice while being betrayed and forsaken by those closest to him. To facing torture and crucifixion and Finally, the ultimate torture of having the Father turn his back on him. None of us would be willing to exchange our life, no matter how hard it's been, for the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. Let me read that again. None of us would be willing to exchange our life, no matter how hard it's been, for the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. He suffered, not just in one way, but in every way. And he suffered, not just for a period of time, but for his entire life. The one to whom we cry when we cry out in pain knows our pain. Because suffering of some kind was his experience from the moment of his birth until his final breath. Can you say anything else? From the scriptures? The descriptions of his life, the descriptions of his birth, the descriptions of his death. Then to affirm that he wasn't only with us, he suffered with us. That means a ton for people like us who are suffering. It means that he's not just watching, but he experienced experienced suffering and he didn't just experience it he experienced all of it and he didn't just give up it's not just over for him he is still a man and our suffering which he took upon himself as his problem when he became a man like us is still his problem because he's still a man like us it says in Acts that he will, re- he will return from heaven as they saw him go. What does that mean? After his resurrection, as Jesus is walking around and he's camping with them and they're having breakfast together and they're putting their hands and their fingers into the holes in his hands and they're putting his, their fists up in the hole where the spear went in. 
He's real, physical man, and he's spending time with them and talking with them and looking them in the face and correcting them and helping Peter be forgiven and then be ready to go and leave the church. He's there. And that man goes ascending into heaven, and the angels not minutes later say, what are you doing? What are you looking at? Disciples, as you saw him go, he will return. means that right now he's still a man. Paul talks about how he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That resurrection moment that he went through, he did and has done and we will also do. Paul again in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is still a man. Why does that matter? Because Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, it wasn't just a one-time thing. The problem of our sin, the problem of our suffering, the problem of our death is still something that greatly concerns him because he is now one of us. In the same way that it would break your heart to watch your spouse suffer, it breaks his heart to watch us suffer. Him being the groom and us being his bride. In the same way that it would just excruciate you to watch your child go through pain, the father feels our pain the same way that a shepherd would weep and do whatever it took for his sheep. So our shepherd does for us. He has suffered with us. So we can say he is with us in our suffering. One of the last things Jesus says as recorded in Matthew says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He's given us this commission to get outside of ourselves and start showing the love that he showed to us. Start following his mission and his glory and trying to build his kingdom with his name on it by helping other people become his disciples. And then he finishes it this way. How perfect is it? This is what Peter's got just blazed on his brain as the last thing Jesus ever said to him. Behold, I am with you always. Always to the very end of the age. When you read this chap- this book, uh, this passage in the Greek, it's that much more important, powerful, sort of the repetition of all. The word all, and you see it in English too. It's pasa in Greek, and you just keep hearing it over and over again. It says, hey, we're going to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and truly I am with you always to the very end of the age. It means that he's with us now in our suffering. What does that mean? Well, in the day-to-day suffering that you feel, the day-to-day fear and pain and anger and anxiety that you feel, he is with you. Take anxiety. When I feel anxiety, it's because there's a part of me that feels this problem that's coming or might come that I have to solve. 
It's on me. I've got to figure this out. And if I don't figure this out, the vice just slowly tightens down on my world. False. That's a lie because he is with me. And he suffered for me, before me, and is now suffering even. He's feeling with me. That's why Jesus can preach. Don't be anxious in the Sermon on the Mount. Why can he say that? that's That's a pretty impressive thing to just throw out there. But a good God is actually going to walk with you through and enable you, strengthen you to not be anxious. Yeah, you're going to feel that flash of anxiety when some issue comes up. That's a painful feeling, a painful feeling response to a painful situation. It's God-given. But in the moment of that anxiety, you will be able to then pray. Put it before the Father. In your fear... My fear is because I see a situation in which something's coming, something's going to happen, and I can't stop it. And I fear because I know that something bad's about to happen, and I'm not able to stop it. But if in that moment, right next to me, is Jesus, he's got my hand, and he's holding me through that wave that's coming across me? Well, then my fear changes. Yeah, you're still going to flinch if somebody's about to punch you. But you know that God, who is sovereign, is going to bring you through. That changes your fear completely. I'm not sure that the word fear is even appropriate anymore. And again, we hear Jesus say something like, fear not. It matters that he's with us in these day-to-day sufferings, but also in the big, lifelong, crazy suffering that you're having to endure. Not only is he with you there, but his life, death, and resurrection preaches to you in that moment. Reminding you that him, he who loves you so much that he came to be with you and to suffer with you and for you, is now with the Lord preparing a place for you. And yeah, it's bad now. And it is. But he went through that fire and has now prepared a place for you. And so you can say things like Paul, who says we don't consider this light, momentary affliction of any account, compared with the eternal weight of glory is prepared for us. Do you feel that? Have you ever preached that to yourself? You can if you know him. You can if you've trusted that he's with you. How do you do that? Yes, there is the immediate moment of salvation in which you say, Father, forgive me. That's what we talk about when we talk about salvation. We're not describing, Gospel versus Religion card, you can pull it out and look at it. We're not describing a process by which you clean yourself up. And then being clean and being impressive God hires you. 
That is not the gospel. The gospel is that in your brokenness, in your sin, in your rebellion, he comes to you to forgive you, to wash you with his own blood, and to call you his son or his daughter, to give you his name, And how do you do that? How do you get that benefit, that blessing? Well, you just receive it. Gospel, good news. It's just, you just receive it. And if you've done that and you have now declared, this is me, this is who I am. I was a sinner before God and he's holy and he's right to punish me. But now, because of what Jesus has done, I can be forgiven of my sin. And please, Father, will you forgive me on on the basis of what Jesus has done, not of what I have done? He saves you. Now, here's what's even more tragic. It's possible that you've received that And yet you still live in the fear and the anxiety of having forgotten what God has done for you. Christian believer, it's possible that you have just forgotten what the gospel says about your suffering. And instead of holding close to him and walking with him, you've chosen to hide from him out of shame out of ambition, out of a desire to live your life your way. And to you, I'm saying, come back to him. There's another story, John chapter 6. You've heard this before. It's a story about Jesus walking on the water. It's a crazy story. And it's told other places, and there's extra pieces to it about Peter coming out to meet Jesus out on the water. But this simple telling of the story in John chapter 6 is really lovely. And because of its simplicity, it's bringing together some of the big motifs that you might miss in the other tellings. John chapter 6, verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went out to sea. They got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus hadn't yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Now, they're frightened, and we're told this in other places, because they're about to die on the boat in this storm. And they're frightened because all of a sudden something is walking on the water out to them. But when they perceive who it is and they hear what he's going to say, verse 20, he said to them, it's I, it's I, it is I, it's me. Do not be afraid. They're glad. They take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Think about what this is saying. They're in a situation which is impossible. It's frightening. It's death-defying. It's terrifying. They think they're going to die, and in fact, they might have. And God, in an impossible way, comes to them. And because he meets them, because he's with them, he can say, don't be afraid. 
what would you be if you trusted that Lord and you trusted that Savior so much that you could say, I'm not afraid. Of suffering, I am not afraid. What would you achieve? What would you accomplish? What would you even just attempt for the kingdom of God if you were not afraid? Because He is with you. Now, we can ask so many more questions. We can talk about so many more things about how does this talk about the the questions called theodicy, this question of how can a good God allow evil? We'll talk about that. There's great stuff there. Don't be scared of that question. But for this moment, think about this fact, that because he is with you, even in the most desperate, the most dark, and the most horrifying moments of your life, even then, he is with you. And he's not just with you watching, but he's with you feeling. Whatever the theology is on that, that he has suffered with you. What would that mean? What would it mean? We have so many different religious perspectives out there. And in those religious perspectives, they have a God who watches you suffer and says, it's your fault. You're suffering because you deserve it. And when you're done suffering... Clean yourself up, and then we'll talk. And you have on the other side these people that will say that there's a God, but the Godness or the nirvana is having the ability to somehow transcend pain. Realizing that pain and death and suffering are illusory. They're they're not real. It's, it's, It's a magic trick. It's a bad dream. And if you can just get past it, then you can get into this state where you don't suffer any longer. And then we have just people who don't believe that there is a God. They have an intense belief and faith in sort of science, materialism, and they say that there is nothing out there. There is nothing beyond here. So fight death. Rage against the dying of the light with everything you've got. And in face of all of these, we have a Savior who said, I will suffer with and for you. Isn't that a God to worship? Isn't that a reason to celebrate this Christmas? If you will let this soak in, it will change everything. And maybe then we can get even more to work. Because we can take you and we can know that it's okay if you go and do something hard and you start to suffer a little bit. You start to give sacrificially. You start to suffer a little bit. You start to invite people and be a public person who follows Jesus. You start to suffer a little bit. It comes time for you to go and to start something big for the kingdom of God. And it's hard. And you start to suffer a little bit. But you know that your Jesus is right there with you. What can we not do? Lord and Heavenly Father, this Christmas we're praying that you would make us understand your love for us. Help us to see the fact of your suffering for us. You don't just suffer with us, Father, but you've suffered for us. You've made a way for the biggest piece of our suffering to fall apart. So we can laugh along and say, Death, where is your sting? Because of what you've done on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who remember and know this to be true. To be a people who suffer, but suffer well because we follow a God who has suffered for us. 
Let us know and understand this, Lord. And as we see it, make us fearless. We go and worship and build your kingdom for your glory, trusting that you will be with us always, even at the end of the age. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.